Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back uh, to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Roy Barsnes, and I am your host for today. I'll be interviewing Dr. Stephen Kuchuk on his most recent book, The Relational Revolution in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, published by Confer in 2021. I'm very pleased to be interviewing Steve today, as this stimulating short text is packed with theory and practice as he carefully examines the impact of the therapist's subjectivity, enactments, co-construction, issues of self-disclosure, multiplicity, as well as a relational perspective on race, gender, and sexuality. And he does this in about 150 pages. It's, uh, it's just a lovely book. Uh, Stephen is a leading teacher and scholar of relational thinking and president of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. He's on the faculty of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and faculty supervisor at the National Institute for the Psychotherapy's National Training Program, uh, Stephen Mitchell Relational Studies Center, and other institutes. He received the Gratiba Award for Best Psychoanalytic Book in 2014 for Clinical Implications of the Psychoanalyst Life Experience When the Personal Becomes Professional and 2015 for the legacy of San- Sandor Ferenczi from Ghost to An- Ancestor, co-edited with uh, Adrian Harris. I'm also pleased to be interviewing Steve as he was the, the thoughtful editor behind my edited text, Core Competencies in Relational Psychoanalysis. And so I've had a few years of working with Steve and, and, and it's always been gratifying to me. So Steve, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Roy, and thanks for such a, a lovely introduction. That- the feeling has been mutual in our knowing and working together. So thank you. Thank you. And as I just said, this is a marvelous text. You've written the text with an ease of language, often not found in our analytic writings. One of the problems I think we have had in the field uh, has been writing to theorists rather than practitioners. And I see your text not only theoretically sound, but practically useful. Good job. In fact, I want to point our listeners to what you say on page 59, where you say at the heart of of why you wrote this text is it is a cruel fate indeed, you say, that so many of our core principles and those of psychoanalysis in general and fields outside our domain have been assigned names and multiple meanings. And throughout this book, I will uh, outline some of the more common and our important ways uh, that we think. Often we are all too complex, you say, and the mind is too multifaceted to be able to see reduced to a singular mode of definition or understanding. So often uh, psychoanalysis has been abstract, so students have turned away from it. And here you have written a text that I think they can turn towards. 
And I'd like you to just speak about that. Sure. I, I, I agree with you. I, the, the way you're wording it, the, the fact that the theory has been written in ways that are just too complex resonates with my experience and what I've experienced uh, with students and supervisees. The language is overly complicated within psychoanalysis, <clears throat> excuse me, and there is a gap between uh, the theorist and the practitioner very often. So my goal with this book was really to be able to write something that could be useful, that one would want to read and not feel like they had to read as a way to be, gain an introduction to relational psychoanalysis. I think we have a few problems. I think we have psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic writing that's complex, overly or not clearly enough written. But then we have a confusion in terminology. Mm. So, you know, for, for example, um, for example, relational psychoanalysis was a term first used by Stephen Mitchell and Jay Greenberg to refer to an umbrella uh, concept that included a number of schools within psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. schools that were organized by object seeking, uh, object relations theory, interpersonal psychoanalysis, and some other, other theoretical frameworks uh, in which humans were assumed to be motivated and develop in the context of object seeking, people seeking other people, as opposed to classical drive theory, where the motivation for development and life is in, understood to be sexual and or aggressive drives pressing for discharge. So that's what Steve Mitchell and Jay Greenberg called relational psychoanalysis. But we've got a problem. Speaking of conf the confusion that you mentioned, Roy, three years later, Steve Mitchell writing on his own now comes up with the term, what is it? It's relational psychoanalysis, same word, to refer to a specific theoretical perspective mm -hmm. or turn, mm -hmm. as you call it, right? So there is so much confusion within psychoanalysis, whether on the graduate student level, uh, uh, among, um, among lay people, or even among, amongst psychoanalysts themselves, there is so much confusion by what we mean when we say relational psychoanalysis. Are we talking about this umbrella term and the many schools of thought within it? Or are we talking about the new perspective that Mitchell uh, created? I think in 1986 is the first time he uses the term relational psychoanalysis in this newer way. My book uh, was written to address some of the confusion in terms between relational and relational, but the book itself really focuses primarily on what we've come to call capital R, big R, relational psychoanalysis, sometimes called the New York School or the North American School of Relational Psychoanalysis as founded by Stephen Mitchell. Yeah. Well, and so uh, the big R being, like you said, it, it's actually a, a kind of a movement or it's a distinctive way of thinking psychoanalytically uh, where originally the small r was around this idea that it was, and they're they're interconnected. I mean, one doesn't throw the other away, but it's um, um, the idea of the small r was it was umbrella of of how psychoanalysis was coming together from a new new lens. Would you say that's 
fairly yeah, accurate. I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Mitchell and Greenberg were using the term relational psychoanalysis to refer to or organize those post-Freudian schools of psychoanalysis that were organized uh, around object seeking as opposed to drive discharge. Yeah. Then Mitchell goes on to use what we sometimes call big R relational psychoanalysis to mean this new perspective or school. Right. Um, so a couple of things that also come out of that, I think that quite people often ask is, so what is interper- how do you, uh, what's interpersonal psychoanalysis compared to relational psychoanalysis? Do you have a comment on that? <laughs> that I'm laughing because that's, a, that's, that's such a big question that I agree with you. That is one of the, uh, confusions that arise. So Mitchell conceived of relational psychoanalysis, the term that we're going to be using to refer specifically to his new orientation, his new way of thinking, his new theoretical perspective, uh, as emerging of British object relations theory, primarily Fairburn's work, with interpersonal psychoanalysis, the interpersonal psychoanalysis of Harry Stack Sullivan, Clara Thompson, Frieda from Reichman, and others, along with uh, gender studies, mm. feminism, uh, queer studies, sociocultural political issues. Now we're talking uh, back in the mid to late 80s as Mitchell and his colleagues were conceiving of relational psychoanalysis. The, the term has expanded a bit in more recent years, which, which maybe we'll be able to talk about later. Uh, so, yes, there's overlap here. There's overlap both with Mitchell and Greenberg's earlier use of the term relational, with Mitchell's later use of the term relational, but there's also overlap between big R relational psychoanalysis, interpersonal psychoanalysis, and object relations theory. Interpersonal psychoanalysis as, as I understand it, and, and, and others, I think, will have some similar perspectives on it, probably, is most interested in, as the name suggests, the ways in which people relate. Uh, the ways in which people relate in real time, the ways in which the therapist and patient interact and relate in the therapy room, and how these relations uh, can give us a sense of the patient's earlier interpersonal experiences and how those play out. Mm. Mitchell's criticism of this, and and he was trained primarily in interpersonal psychoanalysis at William Allenson White Institute in in New York, right? So Mitchell's concern about interpersonal psychoanalysis is that he felt it dealt um, much more with conscious phenomena and here and now phenomena uh, as compared to other uh, forms of psychoanalysis, like object relations theory, which of right. course, especially if Fairburn's work, which Mitchell really focused on, focuses on internalized self and object representations and interjects and such. So Mitchell thought that object relations theory was too internal a process. Uh, interpersonal psychoanalysis was too conscious and here and now a process. And he brought them together like I said, along with these other perspectives from philosophy, sociology, and so on, uh, to create relational psychoanalysis. That's my take on it anyway. We might hear um, some different thoughts from you or others in talking about this. I think you've just done a a really good lecture there, uh, Dr. Kuchuk. I give you a a, (laughs) A. 
because that was really well done. And, and one of the things I'm wondering about when I when I think of my own studies in this, or when I was being brought into the whole field, the whole Sullivanian, Sullivanian idea was this idea of participant observer, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the major things I took away from it. But what I, I saw the relationalists doing is moving uh, even further into the relational uh, aspect of, through intersubjectivity, that it wasn't um, that Solomon was moving us into the system at a conscious level, like you say, but um, uh, the whole relational movement moved us into two subjects operating on the other, and then making good use of that within the therapeutic relationship. What would how would you respond to that? <clears throat> Absolutely, I, I think that's the emphasis shifted even more into the intersubjective realm. But of course, as you know, Roy, here we have another set of challenges around language because the word intersubjective has been used in so many different ways within psychoanalysis. So as I'm listening to you, I'm assuming you mean uh, mutual impact, how the therapist impacts the patient, how the patient impacts uh, the therapist. And that's probably the most typical usage of the word. Mm-hmm. But then we have intersubjective systems theory, right, as as developed by Stolaro and Atwood and Donna Orange and colleagues. Uh, that's it, that it, That is its own separate theoretical perspective. Right. We have the concept of intersubjectivity as discussed by Jessica Benjamin, Lou Aaron, and others that assumes an appreciation of the parents' separate subjective needs and self, and then the patient's developmentally achieved appreciation of the therapist's separate subjectivity. We have that concept. Uh, the intersubjectivists like Stollero and, and Orange, and et cetera, assume a capacity for intersubjective relating and awareness from birth that others think is only achieved developmentally. So I, I think I'm just using your use of the word intersubjective as another excuse to uh, remind all of us that the language is so confusing. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, I agree with you that relational psychoanalysis has done a, a really uh, excellent job on shining a light on the importance of looking at the way both parties uh, impact on each other and impact on each other in a circular fashion. So we're no longer talking about the analyst's countertransference reactions only, mm-hmm. um, perhaps. It's the patient who's responding to the analyst from mm-hmm. the very first moment mm-hmm. rather than the other way around that we've been taught. So, yes, there's a new interest in subjectivity and intersubjectivity, as you point out. Yeah. Well, let's talk just a little bit more about the therapist's subject, because that that is such a central feature of relational psychoanalysis and where I think a lot of people go, what, what does that really look like? And I found your statement on classical analysis, history of neutrality, very provocative. You say abstinence, abstinence, even to the point of erasing ourselves, was the rule. And what you say was the price we pay for bracketing of our subjectivity. So just say more about how um, the, the idea of the therapist's subject, as you, listen, as you think about our listeners, what would be a way that you would say... Um, when we talk about the therapist as subject in relational psychoanalysis, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. When we talk about the therapist in relational psychoanalysis, we need many, 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 many hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Like, absent that silliness, 
Hmm. Freud and his followers spent a great deal of theoretical energy on emphasizing the concept of neutrality, as, Hmm. as we know, right? So that the analyst goes into his or her own training analysis, their own treatment, in order to work through any conflicts or personality quirks or attributes that might otherwise force themselves into the treatment room and affect the work. That's a Freudian understanding of training analysis (laughs) and uh, the concept of neutrality. We keep ourselves in check so as not to impinge on the therapeutic space. We indulge in abstinence, as, as you quoted from the book, as a way of refraining from our own drive, discharge, and muddying the field. Yeah. The, the, the concept, the importance of the blank slate, of coming to the treatment uh, absent of any of our own emotional uh, mess, if you will, or yeah. even plain old dynamics that would otherwise interfere with the patient's ability to free associate and develop a transference to us free of any distraction or contamination. Mm-hmm. So this assumes this way of thinking, which still exists in more classical institutes, this way of thinking assumes that we are supposed to keep the analyst's subjectivity out of the room. What relationalists have come to believe, and I would say that even uh, some contemporary Freudians and and more contemporary thinkers from other schools of thought have come to believe, is that the analyst's subjectivity is inevitable. Right. We are, right, who we are, for better and worse. Right. And to attempt to erase any evidence of our own feelings uh, personality attributes, etc., is to place an unfair burden on us to repress, dissociate, even bracket, as Joyce Slockauer elegantly uh, describes in, in her use of that term, uh, runs the risk of erasing ourselves, putting energy into keeping ourselves in check to such an impossible, absolute extreme that the patient, I believe, even becomes aware of a very constrained, restricted clinician. So that, so now both parties are feeling the pressure. The other, my other concern with erasing our subjectivity is it means that we're missing an opportunity for diagnostic information. Mm-hmm. As, as we know, so much of what we come to learn and know about our patients over the course of the relationship first registers in our own psyches, right? Our own emotional, cognitive uh, reactions teach us so much. So whether through the use of reverie, as as Tom Ogden discusses, or counter-transference tracking, as some call it, or just tracking of our own subjective responses, as, as I and others refer to it, we need to be who we are. Also, if we're not in touch with who we are and how that enters the room, then we're in denial, I would say, about how we impact our patients and how they experience us and therefore key elements of the treatment. Right. Right. Um, Lou Lou Aaron has a a wonderful paper that I cite in the book, and the, the title is something like The Patient's Experience of the Analyst's Subjectivity. 
And he writes about Lou having been really a leader in the field of relational psychoanalysis. Lou writes about the fact that as children, we desperately want to understand our parents' mm-hmm. activities, and that becomes a way that we begin to understand ourselves better. And as patients, a parallel process occurs in which we very much want to understand the way our analysts or therapists' minds work and where we live, where the patient lives in the analyst's mind, yeah. all of which speaks to um, the therapist subjectivity, a two-person psychology, if you will, not only an interest in the patient's psychology and subjectivity, but also an interest that relationalists have in the analyst's subjectivity as a way of understanding the treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so this thing takes me, uh, the place that I wanted to sort of play something out with you on is this issue of self-disclosure. And as you're talking about this, um, the, uh, the, the idea of uh, intersubjectivity I see psychoanalysis, relational psychoanalysis, as our job is the tracking of the intersubjective space. So there's two people in this space, right? And stuff is happening. And so for me, um, I've actually begun to not think much about self-disclosure as about disclosure of the tracking of what is going on within the intersubjective space. And so I actually... um, I, I found in some ways your argument, and so I, I'm hoping you can tell, clear it up for me, uh, in relational psychoanalysis, a bit at odds with itself, that we keep talking about self-disclosure um, almost in uh, the same way that classical analysis has. But in my mind, like I said, it's predicated on intersubjectivity, and the disclosure is within this space that's going on, much less about anything about my personal life. So any thought that you have about that? A lot of thoughts. Okay, good. <laughs> so you know, so I appreciate I appreciate you bringing this up, and yeah, let's let so a couple things. Um, first of all, it's so interesting to me, and I, that when I talk about the topic of the analyst's subjectivity, which of course is only one topic within the larger area of relational psychoanalysis, the relational analyst, as you said. Um, places an emphasis on the importance of the analyst subjectivity and intersubjectivity. And I'm, I'm thinking, by the way, Roy, of these as two different things. Okay. Obviously, they're intertwined and they're related, of course. But if we're thinking of intersubjectivity as the ways in which the analyst and the patient interpenetrate or I- impact each other, um, I, I, I want to move back to the analyst's subjectivity as its own area of study as a correction, right? As a correction to the field of psychoanalysis, which spent the first 80 or 100 years banishing the notion of the analyst's subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So intersubjectivists spend much more focus on looking at the way both parties interact. And in fact, intersubjective systems theorists believe that we can't understand the patient without understanding the analyst or vice versa. It's like a play on Winnicott's concept. There's no such thing uh, as, as a baby without its mother, or am I reversing it? No such thing as a mother. Yeah. Without its baby. Um, There's no such thing as an analyst without her patient. And certainly no such thing as a patient without the analyst. We have to, we, we have to look at one singular unit, the intersubjective unit. 
Mm-hmm. My problem with that, although I subscribe to it and it makes a lot of sense to me on, on a certain level, on another level, my problem with that is that I, I'm, I get concerned that the analyst as a subject of study begins to recede again, right? Oh. If we wash out uh, the differences between the analyst subjectivity and the concept of intersubjectivity. Hmm. Uh, so that's one thing I want to mention. The other thing that I would speak to is the fact that whenever I talk or lecture, whenever I teach about the analyst subjectivity, invariably the topic switches to self-disclosure. And I even did it myself just now. We were talking about the analyst subjectivity and I started mentioning self-disclosure. They're two separate phenomena, right? I would say that self-disclosure could be one topic within a larger framework of looking at the analyst subjectivity. Um, but within the analyst subjectivity, we have self del- deliberate self-disclosure, I should say. We have deliberate self-disclosure. We have life experiences. We have psychodynamic makeup and, and, and personality structure and, and all kinds of things. Um, deliberate disclosure, inadvertent disclosure, of course, happening all the time, the way our offices are decorated. Maybe I should say the way our Zoom rooms are looking, given... <laughs> fact that we're speaking now in June 2021 and moving into July, Uh, the way we speak, the topics that seem to excite us or lead to some kind of uh, verbal shutdown or closure, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's so much inadvertent disclosure. Deliberate disclosure, I would say that um, I think I see it similar to the way you see it, but also different. Similar... uh, to the extent that, yes, of course, the therapist is talking with her patient about the ways in which uh, she feels that both parties uh, impact each other, the intersubjective moments. But the analyst is also talking about the personal, right? About mm-hmm. early experiences or more recent experiences or even something like, I thought about you the other day after the session, Um I, whenever I whenever I use that example, I think about a patient who, in the beginning months, if not year or so, was so anxious and so troubled by the possibility of boundary violation and impingement. When I shared that, that I thought about him after a session, and years later, if he didn't have active evidence of my thinking about him in between or after sessions, he felt injured. So, mm-hmm. um, but at any rate, that that somewhat free association aside. When we talk about deliberate self-disclosure, I think we have a lot of varieties. Um, even an interpretation can be seen as a disclosure right. on the analyst's part. Why did I choose this piece of material uh, to talk about, to address, to interpret? Um, I had a similar experience to you once. That's a personal disclosure. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's a personal disclosure that dovetails with intersubjective impact. Mm-hmm. But maybe you have something different in mind that I'm that I'm not quite understanding. Well, no, I I I, I don't think so. But I do feel like um, what, everything you're saying that these disclosures are emerging within the dyad, and so what is being being disclosed, even if it's personal, is uh, not it, it has something to do with the with the uh, links and patterns or the replications that are occurring. And the negotiation of what has to happen between the space. So to me, what I know shifted in me in my own work years ago 
was I began to see that I was actually attending and paying attention to the movement, uh, intersubjective movement between me and my patient. And we were talking about that. And that would involve at times my experience or my personal thought that just came to me as it relates to this. But so often in the old isolated way, it was um, classical way, self-disclosure was a no-no and any kind of personal word that came up was contamination, right? But absolutely we work relationally now, we're, we're actually looking for us to be disclosing deep affective states that are occurring in the in-between. In the in-between, meaning in that third yes. co-created yeah. space, Roy? Yeah, yeah. that space yeah. between patient and therapist, yeah. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. I, I would agree with all of that. But what I think makes it even more complicated yeah. is the fact that we don't, the analyst doesn't always know why he or she is disclosing, right? right. There's so little of our of the therapist's subjectivity that's accessible to consciousness. Yeah. I mean, part of what makes the analyst subjectivity a difficult area of study within relational psychoanalysis. So in, in my chapter on self-disclosure, I talk about the concept of self-regulatory or narcissistic needs mm-hmm. for the analyst, right? Not just of the patient. So for example, what does it do to us to sit relatively quietly all day right. and listen to our patients? What toll does that take on our psyche? Mm-hmm. To what extent is that right? Does that put us at risk? for burnout, resentment, uh, frequent dissociation. Yeah. What does that do to us? So yes. some analysts find themselves moving into areas of deliberate disclosure as a way to wake themselves up, as a way to hold themselves, yeah. even if the conscious intention is this will be for the, treat, for the purpose of forwarding the treatment, for looking at the intersubjective dynamics, et cetera. So I don't know that we always know. Right. Well, you say that, and you say that so well in the book. I'm going to tell listeners about it. Uh, Steve does a really beautiful job. I actually included in my own text on self-regulatory reasons analysts do disclose and self-regulatory reasons analysts do not disclose. And it, it's, su- it's a, just such a nice matrix, frankly, uh, making us very much conscious of, of our, what's going on in our, uh, in our affective states and our minds. And he also, um, uh, Stephen also refers to Ogden's use of reverie and Ferenczi's idea of elasticity and Hoffman's uh, idea of spontaneity. And it's really, I think, done, you've done such a lovely job, Stephen, of saying, we're dis- we are here, we are disclosing, we are subjects, and we have to be very, very thoughtful of it. There's a metabolizing that has to go through. And uh, I love the way that you uh, used uh, the example of Ogden and his use of reverie in particular. But I, I appreciate that. I, I, I um, and I appreciate classical psychoanalysis perspective on not disclosing. Right somewhere in it, I've written um, that part of the analyst's job, to whatever extent this is possible, is to protect a patient's right not to know certain things about us. You know, I think that I think it's very easy for the therapist to play out one end. Of, of a polarity or the other, right? We can either be so restrained and withholding and deprive the patient of an acknowledgement of our obvious subjective presence, mm-hmm. or we can spill. And I suspect Freudians spill as often as relationalists or object relationalists or self-psychologists 
even though our theories have different things to say mm-hmm. about um, containing versus uh, expressing ourselves via via self-disclosure. But also each of us has our own personality style. For some of us to refrain from deliberate disclosure is not only to deprive a patient of a richer therapy experience, but runs the risk of, uh, how do I put it? Out, the analysts perhaps being inauthentic mm-hmm. and not truly themselves and therefore not real enough or spontaneous enough, as, as Hoffman would say, in the room. Uh, for others of us, for others of us to deliberately disclose is to make ourselves feel too vulnerable, too exposed, and perhaps not regulated enough. So I think one of the contributions of relational psychoanalysis is there is no one one size fits all. It makes it a different, um, a more difficult model to teach, because I would say to some supervisees, it might be useful if we could talk about what it would be like to engage in deliberate disclosure a bit more actively, while I might say to another supervisee, um, I wonder how it might feel to attempt some containment in that area. Right. Right. And I would probably say to both supervisees, none of this is going to be within your conscious control all the time anyway. Can we deal with whatever guilt or anxiety that notion may bring up mm-hmm. for you and, and, and look at how that might affect the treatment? Right. Stephen, I'm going to give you um, uh, so much I want want to highlight in this book, and I know we're limited on time. So I'm going to tell you the things that I think you're really um, doing some very important con- contribution to, and then you get to choose which one you want to talk about. <laughs> the first one is in your chapter on dissociation, multiple self-states, and trauma. You say something that is really powerful here. Uh, relational thinking is shaped not only by repression and interpsychic conflict, but by dissociation. So hold that thought for a moment, and I can repeat it for you if you want. You also do a very nice, uh, I, I love this idea of you're talking, when you talk about mindfulness, you talk about relational psychoanalysis as mindfulness in action. So that's very intriguing to me. And uh, then the next thing about tension in therapy, uh, I love this because I think uh, we've made therapy so land, if you will, and how essential the role of tension is within the therapeutic encounter. The next is uh, you bring in sexuality and you say, um, in turning away from drive theory, we may have inadvertently and unfairly diminished the sexual in our work. Um, And then you talk about race in the future uh, of psychoanalysis as well. But that's a lot of stuff that we're not going to be able to all get uh, get into all of that. But I want you to sort of take all that and play with it the way you would like. What a relational way of addressing this on your part. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Inviting me to uh, co-construct the interview. Yes. If you will, I, I, that's, that's kind of lovely. Mm. Um, okay. So let's think. Maybe I can, maybe I can talk about a couple of these things. I know I want to make space for talking about race a little bit um, because it has been so under-theorized in psychoanalysis in general. Right. Less so, less so in relational psychoanalysis because from the beginning when Mitchell invited his colleagues in to develop relational psychoanalysis with him, uh, Neil Altman and some others 
uh, brought in an interest in external systems and sociocultural issues like race uh, in ways that psychoanalysis had not addressed before. Having said that, uh, I was writing, I was finishing up the book in the middle of the pandemic and the, um, the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement and, and resurgence of, of, of activism in that area and a push for all of us in society, including psychoanalysts, obviously, to address, uh, to address the wrongs and tremendous injustices that have been done um, to people of color. I would say perhaps uh, black people in particular, but certainly all people of color, we already have been addressing the injustices done to women and LGBTQ plus populations. Um, so I guess I find myself answering uh, w- one of these questions right off the bat, and, and maybe there'll be time for more. We'll see. But um, race is under-theorized in psychoanalysis mm-hmm. because Freud himself and, and most of his, almost all of his original followers, his initial followers, because Freud was Jewish, he was kept out of the university and could not pursue the new science of psychoanalysis uh, as openly as he would have preferred to. And it seems to me, Lou Aaron and Karen Starr in their wonderful book, Psychotherapy for the People, and other analytic scholars have made the point that Freud probably very much under-theorized, minimized, in fact, perhaps non-theorized race yeah. and religion as areas of study within psychoanalysis as a way of dealing with the fact that he himself was trying to blend in and suffering from the implications Jews were considered to be non-white uh, at the time of, of his work. So uh, we have just not touched race. Well, and so. we're no better than anyone else in society. We've not only not theorized race, but we've kept non-white theorists and clinicians uh, out of the academy, out of the leadership positions and institutes and other settings. And so, and we've not trained enough people of color. So psychoanalysis has a big problem with race that relational analysis is, and other schools are trying to address. Yeah. That's what you were going to say. Well, I was going to say, I think one of the things that happened in psychoanalysis is it went inter- by going intrapsychic, I should say that, which has been a very rich contribution to humankind, actually, in terms of how we know the mind and, and soul. But we are also made up so complex, so complexly, if that's the word, through our cultures, through our traditions, through our, through our race, through our positions, through our locatedness in life. And I think what I appreciate about the, uh, what, or I, what I think the relational model can, can provide with some of its theories like, like intersubjectivity or enactments and surrender and the third and the idea that, uh, like you started this this show with, with um, uh, queer theory and uh, liberation psychology and that sort of thing, beginning to influence us that we are not just influenced in that first year of life between a mother and a child, but there are multiple portals into the soul. And I think a relational psychoanalysis is opening that discussion up. That's so well put. It's a radical position still. For, yeah. more radical for some of us than for others, perhaps, right. but it's still a new and, and even radical revolutionary, if you will, yeah. uh, position, as you stated. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
What about this idea of bringing sex back into the clinic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I I do believe what what you were referring to before that with the with the move away from drive theory, the move away from physiology, innate physical tendencies uh, like libido, like sex, uh, th- that relational psychoanalysis has has ushered in, we do run the risk of ignoring the body. Look, yeah. the body has always been ignored in psychoanalysis. Yeah. We're a heady bunch. It's a heady set of theories, even moving back to your initial yeah. statements about, right about um, the, the ambiguity and complexity of language sometimes. We're very in our heads. Yeah. So I might address your question about sexuality by also addressing the question of the missing body in the treatment room, whether it's the analyst's body that's missing or the patient's in terms of how uh, sessions are conducted and how attention is called to more intellectualized verbal phenomena than, than physical states. But sex is not, is still not well enough understood or made use of in treatment, I think it's the um, the analyst's discomfort and shame, mm-hmm. right? In talking about yeah. this as a topic, which of course the patient is happy to collude with and or vice versa. The patient and analyst mutually influence each other in, in these areas as in all areas. Um, so sex is often kept out of the room, um, right? Even the notion of the erotic transference or erotic counter-transference it has always scared us yeah. in psychoanalysis. And for years, we had the idea that if, if the patient felt uh, too much of an erotic transference to the analyst, uh, a treatment couldn't be conducted. That was, that was classical thinking about this topic. I think a lot of relationalists and more contemporary people would, would think differently about it. And God forbid the clinician themselves has an erotic response to the patient. But you know, I can imagine a lack of an erotic response to be as meaningful or more meaningful in some treatments. Absolutely. Right. You know, so we're, we always have to wonder about the impact of sex, what's being kept out of the room, what's not being talked about. Shame. Shame is one of those um, states that is contagious also, that also makes it difficult. So I think when one person feels shame, and tries to talk about it or manifests it physiologically, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of, it, it intensifies within the patient or the analyst, and then the other party feels it as well. But sex is under-theorized. Gender has been under-theorized, although we do a better job of it. And um, I think it's, we, we need to pay particular attention, and I discuss this in more detail in the book, uh, to the missing idea, the idea of, of sex missing. This is something actually Galit Atlas uh talks about quite beautifully. Um, Jonathan Slavin and Mickey Rahmani address it um, quite thoughtfully as well. The missing missing sexuality. Well, and as, I, think, uh, for, I think we're so scared of it. Uh, and I had I, my second patient I ever had, uh, we had quite a, quite a go of it. And I was absolutely scared. You know, I was scared to have that in the room. And we had the uh, privilege of meeting up again about, oh, 15 or 20 years after the treatment. And she said to me at that time, she says, you know, it must have been so hard for you because I wanted you so bad. And I said, but really, you didn't want me at all. And she paused and she said, well, not that way. 
And so this eroticism is about as much about energy and connection. And when we over-personalize it and think it's really about us and that we're wanted uh, in that particular way, I think we miss out on so many richness, richness of what the, what the patient is trying to, to push for, penetrate us for. Well, well put. Abs- yeah, absolutely. And I like what you, uh, I want to, you say this about the body, which I think is great, because I think we, a- we like to think or analyze our patients rather than to feel or experience, and experience mm-hmm. them. And you say here, because the body and mind have an inseparable connection, the analysis must seek to find words for what the body experiences. Oh, I just love that, Stephen, because we we feel things before we think things. And so if we can train ourselves and our, and our supervisees and students to pay deep attention to the bodily impact that's happening to them when they're sitting with a patient, I think that's going to be a huge gift that you're giving people in this book. I, I appreciate that. And I really appreciate how you how you put it, feeling more than more than thinking or analyzing, um, feeling is a part of the, the analysis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We feel things in our bodies first. Relational analysts are interested in 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 going there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of permission within relational psychoanalysis to explore uh, areas of 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 human uh, human presence, development, yeah. human beings that we've not always given ourselves within psychoanalysis. So yeah. certainly the body becomes well, Along it. with um, the uh, idea of the body and of the uh, erotic and of, of our positioning where we are in culture and tradition that you talk about, all of this, Stephen, brings conflict into the relationship <laughs> because there's difference and contrast. And I think so many therapies, the way they're performed these days, lacks the role of tension. And you speak to this so eloquently uh, with how important this is a, an important factor of relational psychoanalysis. Can you say more about that? Sure. I agree. Uh, there are so many misunderstandings and caricatures about what relational psychoanalysis is, which is part of why I wrote the book, to try to get a better understanding of, of what the work is. But one of the accusations, perhaps misunderstandings, although maybe um, an insightful uh, observation is that relational analysts are in fact interested in aggression, in tension, in discordant dynamics. The the healing that happens in a relational treatment very much involves looking at the way our internal object relationships play themselves out in the room and the way our interpersonal patterns um, can be used to understand earlier ways of relating to primary objects and others in our life, right? So if we don't also look at tension, as you say, uh, differences, aggression, sexuality, love, yeah. the absence of any of these uh, pieces, then we're missing so much. It seems to me that one of the things that we humans struggle with, I guess one of the many things, um, is learning how to make space for difference, tension, and even aggression. Yeah. And uh, I think it's the rare patient and the rare, therefore the rare analyst who doesn't have difficulties or conflicts around things like tension. So I really want to talk with patients, and this also gets perhaps 
to to the concept of mindfulness in action that I write about too that you mentioned. Yeah. But this means that we need to track with our patients what it's like for them to hear us. Mm-hmm. What, what what is their fantasy of what it's like for us to hear them? Yeah. But also, what is it like? For them to hear us. Yeah. What is our impact on each other? And what happens when there's tension? Can we both tolerate that and yeah. survive that? A la Winnicott's use of the object and the, the child's but baby and then child's need to destroy the parent and the who can survive the attempted destruction, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So tension and aggression and difference is all part of being human as much as love is in can there be space for all of it? We, we hope so in, 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 a, in a relational approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you like to leave with the listeners today? What, um, what word of wisdom uh, and what is your concerns about the future or the hopes that you have for the future mm-hmm. of relational psychoanalysis and life in general? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that I want, I hope the listener, and or the reader, and any practitioner, any patient, any human, what I want to leave us with is permission to be our vulnerable, imperfect selves. Wow. One of the, one of the gifts of relational psychoanalysis in my life, and I think in in the field has been this focus that that you and I have talked about on the analyst as a person, the therapist's actual subjectivity. We're all, you know, a a la Harry Stack Sullivan's wonderful, wonderful quote, we are all much more human than otherwise. Right. I'd want to come towards leaving our talk today, reminding us of that, and therefore making space in our relational theorizing and practice for what it means to be an imperfect human working with and trying to help another imperfect human. Mm. And how do we draw on certain tenets of relational thinking like subjectivity, self-disclosure, enactment, dissociation, multiple self-states? How do we draw on all of that against that backdrop? But, But as for the future of relational psychoanalysis, I have some concerns uh, I have concerns about the fact that I think a lot of more contemporary relational training does not make a lot of space for studying one person uh, psychology mm. and uh, classical Freudian. And while there are advantage, while there are advantages to moving right into relational theoretical frameworks. Um, there are also disadvantages of not having the dialectical touchstone of moving back and forth between one person and two person kind of theorizing and thinking. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's both a concern and, and, and an excited um, kind of challenging curiosity to see how that will play out in terms of training. Another concern is, can we diversify the field more? Can we make more space for uh, clinicians of color for trainees, for patients that are not only white and male and straight uh, in our field so that our profession could look more like our societies. And um, there's more I could say about all of this. And I, I, I address some of this in, in, in the book, as you know. Right. But I, 
appreciate the question. There's there's so much to think about. Well, what I appreciate what you're saying is, uh, and it's something we we all we kind of all throw history away. We always think that what is in the moment is the most important, and yet we all stand on the shoulders of phenomenal thinking. Like I remember a student saying to me, "Well, I don't like any of this Freudian stuff," and I said. <laughs> So I said, have you ever, do you ever feel like you deny anything? Uh, have you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, you know, that we all speak Freudian, the whole country. Uh, and we need to remember on whose shoulders we stand upon. And Freud would not be Freud today uh, if he was a good theorist, which he was. So history yeah. is really important. And so I appreciate you saying that. The other thing that you bring to, to this conversation, I think, for the future, um, there's something about suffering um, and, 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 uh, forgiveness that I've been working on in my own thinking that when we begin to see what our country is suffering through these days, how does that begin to show up in the, in, in our work and in our theories and in our minds? So I just wanted to add that. Such a great and relational question. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So I wanted to say to the audience, um, I'm just going to give you the chapters of this wonderful book. The first one is Setting Sail for the New World, an introduction. Then the next is The Analyst Subjectivity, which we spent time on today for sure, and Self-Disclosure is Chapter 3. Chapter 4 is Intersubjectivity. Chapter 5, Dissociation, Multiple Self-States and Trauma. Chapter 6, Enactment. Chapter 7, Affect Regulation, Attachment and the Body. Race, Gender, and Sexuality is Chapter 8. And chapter 9 is Concluding Thoughts, A Vision for the Future. Well, as I think of this, um, Stephen, we did not too bad. I think we covered quite a bit of that. <laughs> and uh, so thank you so much. And I do want to say to the uh, listeners as well that um, to, to both of us, and certainly uh, for you, Stephen, because you knew him so much better, this book is dedicated to Lou Aaron who, as uh, Stephen says, the finest teacher and most passionate colleague and and relational psychoanalytic torchbearer he's ever known. Um, So I wanted to just mention that as well. So again, thank you so much and um, look forward to, oh yeah, do you have another book in mind for your future? I do, um, but need a little bit more time to uh, think about it. I I am working on a a collection of papers that focuses on the therapist as, as a person. Oh, wonderful. So Good. thank you for asking. And thank you for the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. This has been great. 